from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. And hello, listeners. Last week, the podcast took us to Austin, Texas. And this week, we're in Washington, D.C. We're such world travelers, Brian. We are, Katie. And in fact, on the plane over here, I sat next to a very nice guy named Grant Francis. From L.A.? uh, Yes. And he was about to download an episode of our show. Seriously? Seriously. And you just saw him downloading it? And And I just, I was looking at his phone, of course. As a matter of fact, (laughs) I am actually the co-host of that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for the impression of my nasal voice. <laughs> is that what you said? <laughs> that is sort of what I said. Hopefully a little less obnoxious. No, 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 no. But that was so cool. It was really cool. And he was very nice. And he said that he liked a couple past episodes of our show. So it was very nice to meet a listener and Grant Thank you very much yes, for listening. I, I second that, Grant. Thank you for downloading our podcast, and we're glad you're enjoying it. Meanwhile, we're here in Washington to interview the junior senator from the state of Alabama, Senator Doug Jones. He is Alabama's first Democratic senator in 25 years. Exactly. And this all came about because Jeff Sessions quit his Senate seat to become Donald Trump's attorney general. I wonder whether he's still glad he left, by the way. Anyway, there was a special election to replace Sessions. And Alabama, as many of our listeners know, because our listeners are very smart, is a deeply red state that went overwhelmingly for President Trump in 2016. The empty seat was expected to go to a Republican candidate, any Republican candidate, quite easily. But... But as our listeners, our very smart listeners probably remember, last fall, several women gave on-the-record accounts accusing the GOP candidate Roy Moore of making sexual advances toward them when they were teenagers. And by the way, the Washington Post just won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of that story. Yes, congratulations to my friends at the Washington Post. So Doug Jones defeated Roy Moore. And Alabama's African-American voters in particular came out in overwhelming numbers in support of Jones, but not so much the white voters in Alabama. No, he only got 30 percent of the white 
vote, which was enough, but barely enough, to win. So anyway, in today's show, we'll get to know Alabama's newest senator from his teenage years in newly integrated public schools to his role in prosecuting two Ku Klux Klan members responsible for an infamous 1963 Birmingham church bombing that killed four young black girls. And full disclosure, Doug Jones, Senator Jones, is a good friend of my second cousin, Henry (laughs) Frozen, and his lovely wife, Carolyn, down in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, so I have a little bit of a connection with him through my cousin, Henry. Through your gothic southern roots. That's right. (laughs) So here we are in his office, and it was... It was very exciting to be able to interview Senator Jones to come to the Capitol. I always get a kick out of being here, no matter how many times I've been. And our first question to him was a very simple one. What is it like when Mr. Jones comes to Washington? Here you are. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's as exciting as it's ever been for me. I What's mean, exciting about it? Well, you know, a part of it is just surreal, and part of it, the excitement is is just literally, you know, starting my career here. I mean, with Senator Heflin from Alabama, who I, I just really looked up to his entire life, and still do look up to him for advice in many ways. And to have walked off the Senate floor, which I think is a real place of reverence, as a 26-year-old Senate staffer, with him and to come back in his seat, you know, too many years later, but uh, still to walk back on. It is, I get chills every time I walk in and to just, you know, walk off the, the, the elevator and those the pages open those double doors and to walk onto the floor. It's just remarkable. It's just amazing. I'm just honored. I'm humbled to be here. It's just as exciting as I could have ever thought it might be. You're getting kind of emotional. Oh, yeah, it, it, it will. It will. Absolutely. And I noticed here in your office, your new office, there's a picture in a place of honor above the mantle yep. of you and Senator Heflin. Yep, yep. He was uh, he was an amazing guy. The day I was sworn in, I wore a pair of his cufflinks. Uh, it's the only time I've worn them I got from his son, who uh, Tom. What made him so friend. amazing? Well, I mean, I think because, well, first of all, you have to remember the Senate is a far different place today than it was then. In those days, you know, bipartisanship was really more than a catch slogan and a campaign or a soundbite. Uh, they really did it. And, you know, you had regular order in which bills went through committees and there were hearings and you get it to the Senate floor and you have the opportunities for amendments and real debates like the Senate was designed to do. We just don't do that anymore. I mean, there are senators that have been here for two and four years that really have never seen regular order. You know, that's what it is. And so that's, he had that ability, I think, as a, as a Southern senator to really bridge the, the gaps a lot, to reach across the aisle. You know, he voted in, uh, with President Reagan a lot. He voted with President Clinton a lot. He was just a, a, a really great role model and would, uh, and, and back home in Alabama, uh, he was loved by all sorts of folks. I'll never forget in 1978 when he first ran. This was 1978. He had done the judicial article. The, the, the quote I always remember was from the director of the Alabama Civil Liberties Union with that, you know, pretty liberal group in Alabama uh, and, and elsewhere. But his comment in a Time Magazine article was that Judge Heflin is the kind of public servant of which he, his mother, and his grandmother can all agree. That says it all to me. If you can bridge that span of generations, you're really doing the right thing. 
I know we could probably spend yes, we hours talking about what happened, but Senator, you know, you're just describing what it was like here when you were a Senate staffer, yeah. and now it seems completely dysfunctional. Yes, no, I, I won't say it's completely dysfunctional, but it's, it's close. Um, the budget process is just horrible. It is just something that we should not, you, you should not be funding the government of the United States on a kick the can down the road basis. And everybody trying to put must have, um, you know, special things in a, in a budget bill and a must pass bill. I, I, I think it's a long time coming. Um, I can't really pinpoint one thing. Uh, I think you go back to the Clinton impeachment and how folks really started attacking uh, President Clinton uh, and the First Lady at the time. I think that carried over some, and folks attacked uh, George W. Bush, except for, you know, after 9-11 and, and people rallied around. But since that time and, and with the uh, election of Barack Obama, it just seems that everything has become more and more and more polarized. And rancorous. And rancorous. And the votes that are done are really political messaging votes a lot. Even on nominees, they're political messaging votes. Uh, I will say, Katie, there's a lot more collegiality in the Senate that goes on that, that people don't see. And that has been very good for me to, to be able to see. You often see the dueling press conferences, or you see you know, one senator from either party going on the floor and railing against whatever or railing for something. But what you don't often see is work going on with staff and behind the scenes um, in the committee level. You don't see when we take votes over there, people on both sides of the aisle talking to each other, not just hidden back in the cloakrooms, but they're, they're talking about their kids and they're talking about different. There's a lot more of that. But it just comes to when it comes down to the uh, schedule of the Senate, the, the majority leader controls that. And uh, I think the majority leader, whether it has been Republican or Democrat, has controlled that in a little bit more political way than what the Senate has traditionally done in the past. There's been a lot of discussion about members of Congress not spending time together because yes. they're so quick to go home and you know, run for re-election. And right. the fundraising needs are Right, exactly, constant. exactly. So, but you're saying, have you been able to spend time with people from, you know, Republican senators in, in a social way? Some, not as much as, as, as I would like. I've met some for lunch. We've met for breakfast. Um, most of that time has been spent on the floor when we're over there for a vote, just talking, or at a committee um, a level. But that's, that's right. People leave. I get out of here on, on Thursdays. I've told people I've been here three and a half, almost four months now. I, I don't know what Washington, D.C. looks like anymore because I, I get to the office. I have a really full schedule. I'm back and forth to the Capitol or I'm back and forth to the Dirksen or Hart building for, for hearings. Uh, as soon as the order of business is done, there's a reception for somebody in Alabama or there's a fundraising reception for someone else or for me. Go back to my little place at nine o'clock at night, read the briefing books for the next day, get up and do it all over again. So there's not as much. I think people do miss, you know, the weekends where folks didn't feel compelled to go home, but it's the world we live in today. That's not as much uh, Congress. I think that as much as anything is the demands of, our, of the people that we represent. They want to see us. 
you used to run a campaign against somebody who gets detached from the people at home. They, they don't go home anymore. They stay in Washington, D.C., and you run against the Beltway. So people started going home, and people started demanding. They want to see their U.S. senator, even if they didn't vote for him or her. They want to see, they want to talk, they want to be able to reach out. At least that's my philosophy. So we're, we're getting back home a lot uh, and starting to try to move around. When you talked about rising partisanship, you mentioned the opposition to President Obama. And we're going to talk more about race later. But how much of um, the intense opposition to him do you think was driven by the fact that he was the first African-American president? Well, personally, I think, it, I think there was a good bit. Um, but that kind of bubbled up from the ground. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't ascribe that to any of the folks in the Senate. I really don't b- believe that. I think it was just a political thing, and that folks saw an opportunity because there was such opposition. There were, you couldn't find anybody in Alabama that would ever say that they were opposed to President Obama because of his race. But you always knew that that was an underlying part of a good bit of the opposition. There's no question. Well, nobody would ever admit that. No, nobody's ever going to admit that. I mean, not many people would. But when Donald Trump raised the issue of his birth certificate, do you think he was playing the race card? Yes, absolutely. I think think he was playing a race card, but I also think he was playing a a Trump card, for lack of a better term. I mean, I quite frankly think that that was as much as anything— because he knew that there was a base out there that that believed that. There were a lot of people that really believed that and thought that, and it was so bogus. But Trump saw an an opportunity to play that card, to build his uh, stature some. And then, you know, it was only after it got completely debunked and he he saw it was going to be a negative for him that he very timidly said, oh, yeah, well, maybe I was not right. I don't even think he said that. (laughs) Well, speaking of Donald Trump, he's been president for a little over a year now. How do you think he's doing so far? But before you tell us that, have you met him? Yeah, I I have. He called me the day after the election. It was very nice. Um, You know, congratulated me on the win. Said he was looking forward to having me to the White House and to work together. There was no, you know, there was nothing you would expect. It was a very nice call. Uh, it, it took about a month, I think, when we the first government shut down. I mean, think of this: how many how many how many senators get sworn in and then they have a chance to shut the government down after a, a month? I mean, that just was crazy. Um, and when we voted back up, he called over here and asked that I and Senator Manchin go to the White House. And so we went over there that afternoon. And again, it was just a pleasant conversation. Um, you know, General Kelly was there. There were a couple of other folks in the room. And there was not any kind of hard bargains. You know, DACA and and immigration was the biggest issue driving things at that point. But there was none of that. There was a little bit of talk of that. There was some talk about infrastructure. I told him about some specific infrastructure issues with uh, sewers and things like that in Alabama that I thought he should know about. So it's just a real pleasant call. That was the only that's been the only time. I've seen the legislative folks a couple of times. And, but um, you, you actually were there. It wasn't just a call, right? No, no, no. We went over there. We, yeah. were, we sat in the Oval Office, and, uh, you know, we were there. And he just, he wanted when to call. When you say call, you mean the Southern kind of call. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> we called on him. He called on us. Yeah, okay. and, and, and so we, but we were there. They were literally holding a vote for me and Joe because the president just kind of wanted to talk a little bit. And I think he enjoyed the talk and 
we, we kicked around a few things. We were there about 45 minutes, I guess, and, and literally had to just like zoom back. And you found him to be us. pleasant? He was pleasant to us. It was, it was a nice conversation. I had no, no complaints about that conversation at all. President Trump has been in office a little over a year. How do you think he's doing so far? Well, I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think the president is doing some, a lot of what he said he was going to do. And, and in that resp- uh, respect, you've got to, you know, give him some high marks, even though I don't like a lot of the things he's doing. I don't like a lot of the rollbacks he's doing by executive orders and those kind of things. I don't like the fact that EPA is being dismantled right before our eyes. I don't like the fact that he has done some things on foreign policy that I think has has diminished the United States of America standing in the world. Like what? Well, I think, you know, the, all of the tariffs, I think all of the just things he's done in Europe to just basically pull away from, you know, being the world leader and the moral uh, leader of the world that we've always been. I think that that is, is, is pulling back. On the other hand, he showed some toughness in Syria. Uh, he is... I didn't particularly like the name calling with North Korea that scared me to death, but that there's, you know, he's at least, I think they're planning some things and people are a little bit more hopeful now about some resolution with North Korea. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. He brought Kim Jong-un ostensibly or apparently to the table. And I think people have mixed feelings about it. You think it's a good thing? Well, I think, look, anytime that you can deflate the tensions that we had there about four or five months ago, I think that's a good thing. Now, I, I think people got very concerned, as did I, and this was before I was elected, when you started seeing Twitter wars, uh, which was just silly junior high school name-calling. Rocket okay? Man. Rocket Man, you know, it, just all sorts of things beneath the dignity of the President of the United States. On the other hand, I also know enough about the United States government to know there was a lot going on behind the scenes. And so I think between what the administration has done uh, and what the world has kind of done as well, because we're not the only ones putting pressure on North Korea. Their, their economy is in a shambles. They're incredibly poor. Um, they need the world. They need the world a lot more than the world needs them. And so I think there was a combination of things that is at least for the time being kind of ratcheted down uh, the threat level. That's not to say that North Korea is not still a threat, because they certainly are. And I don't take the recent events of pulling back and suspending their nuclear testing as anything more than what is normally done in anticipation of more talks. I mean, that's fairly standard for even a rogue nation like, like North Korea right now. We'll see how that goes. And we, we've now started trade wars with China when we really need China to help us with North Korea. It's a real complicated thing, but which, which of- I got to tell you, Katie, is, is all of those answers. You got to figure a year ago, I'm just a lawyer in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> OK, so so keep all this in mind when I'm, I'm waxing eloquent. I'm still learning a lot. But the criticism has been that you shouldn't reward Kim Jong-un with a presidential meeting uh, without having demonstrated real meaningful I progress. I, 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 I don't disagree with that at all, and we're not there yet. We, that meeting's not taken place. I think what's come out of the administration is he would like to. I don't have a problem with that, uh, but we'll see, I, because I, I am of the camp that certainly uh, there needs to be something more than, oh, we're going to suspend right now before the, 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 the leader of the free world meets with someone like uh, 
the North Korean leader. Sounds like you're willing to give President Trump some some props on a few things. Yeah, I, yeah, sure. I mean, he's, you know, look, he's the Do you president. think he's being treated unfairly in the media? Um, I'm not sure I'll go that far because I think he treats the media a lot more unfairly than the media treat him. Um, I, I don't buy into the fake news argument or anything like that. Um, I, I've got my own criticism, some of the media, where I think the media focuses on issues that sell newspapers and, and podcasts and, you know, and, and not radio. This podcast, not this podcast, Senator. We're very not. substantive. Not this one. Of course not. Um, but, you know, so there, there's a combination of things. Um, has he been treated unfairly in certain circumstances? Yes. But at the same time, you know, there's some things he, he has said and done that I think is fair game. A lot of what he's done is fair game. So I don't think overall, I don't think he's been treated unfairly at all. On the other hand, you know, I mean, when did we think that we were going to use the term the president in the same sentence as a porn star? I mean, what? What? Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I, I get it. It, it, it. it will almost daily make your head explode. I mean, that and all the other allegations that that have come up and the collusion and and whether a lawyer is going to flip or not flip flip on what i mean it's there is a a cavalcade of things that are are disturbing uh, I think for people to look at and there's a lot I know of a lot of investigations and so in that context i don't think that there's an unfairness at all uh with with that my concern is that the president is able to use his social media platform to basically say, just don't look at any of that. It's all fake. Well, it's, it's not all fake. I mean, there, there are facts out there. And sooner or later, there's a lot of facts that are going to come out. We just don't know where they're going to land. You've been a practicing lawyer your whole life right. and a former U.S. attorney. You were also a defense attorney. So I was curious to ask you about how you felt when you see what's going on with the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen? And what kinds of things, Senator, would you be looking for if you were in charge of this investigation? Wow. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, first of all, let me, let me, let's, let's back up just a little bit because having a search warrant executed on the office and the uh, home of a lawyer. And the hotel room. And the hotel. It, 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 there's a number of steps that you have to go through. And, you know, you have to... Uh, so let's go back. And, you know, the special counsel presented some evidence to the Justice Department that however they got it, they believe showed that there was some potential criminal activity. Remember, it's just a probable cause standard. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt or anything like that. And so the special counsel presented that to uh, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general who's in charge of that. That was appropriate for, for them to do. In any major investigation, when you're subpoenaing as many witnesses and as many documents, the odds are you're going to find something outside of your lane that you see as a potential problem. It happens in every major investigation. In the special counsel stand, uh, situation, though, his lane is, is such that unless it's really related, he shouldn't be doing it. So he presented it to the DAG, and Rosenstein says, this is not in your lane. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move it to where it needs to be. So that's step number one. Everybody did their exact right thing. They did exactly what the law requires. 
Rosenstein then assigns it. They look at it. And I can they guarantee- They signed it to the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District yes, of New York. Yes, who I understood may have recused himself. But let, now there, there are prosecutors on the ground, just like in my office in Birmingham were, that are looking at this, and they're evaluating this evidence for probable cause to see that a crime was committed, that Mr. Cohen may have been involved in the crime, and that there are documents in his possession that they can't really get hold of or they don't believe they can get except through the use of a search warrant, which is a pretty extraordinary procedure. And so there's layer upon layer of review within the Justice Department in order to get approval to then go to a judge who has to review it independently before that search warrant is issued. So Mr. Cohen's in trouble. I mean, he's, I mean, there's some real issues. Now, I've seen in my, in my lifetime, in my career, there have been any number of search warrants issued that resulted in no criminal charges for whatever reason. Could that be the case here? Absolutely. But the fact is the rule of law is prevailing at this point, and I'm convinced the rule of law will prevail. And if there's a problem there, he will get charged. If there's not a problem, I'm convinced the rule of law will prevail, and that case will be closed. But it's a really, that, and that's just Cohen. And then you've got Mueller's special counsel doing their own work. And I've known Bob Mueller a long time. Um, he is the consummate professional. Everybody up here believes that and knows that, at least here in the Senate. He is moving efficiently. Uh, he is doing so without a lot of leaks, which is incredibly important. Um, and so, you know, there's going to there's gonna be some things yet to fall. They're doing a lot of work. Where that goes, no one knows, and we shouldn't continue to speculate about that. Until Having said that, work. though, if you were President Trump, would you be more worried about Michael Cohen or Bob Mueller? Well, I think that any time somebody's lawyer uh, is uh, subpoenaed, you would have to worry about that because there are potentially things that could come to light that are, are generally you would have thought privileged that may not be a crime, but you just don't want them to do that. But at the same time, what's a little bit inconsistent from what I'm hearing right now is that I'm not worried about Michael Cohen flipping. Okay, well, I mean, you know, if somebody's not done anything wrong, you know, you should be the first to say, Michael, please cooperate, give him everything. Look at all this. And instead it's like, oh, I trust him, he's not gonna flip. That's a little bit disturbing. And it tells me, unfortunately for the president, he is not listening to his lawyers because I guarantee you his, his personal lawyers are, are just cringe every time something like that is said because it makes him look. I, I think he's not versed enough in this world of federal criminal law to understand the terminology, and he's saying things that really make him look bad. You'd be saying zipit.com. Oh, I would, I, would be, I would be locking him in a safe. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you, I would, you know, the worst thing is to have clients out there on Twitter and talking like that, because it, it always comes back to haunt you. You know, Katie, in the church bombing cases, one of the things that we did in Cherry's case, after he was interviewed, he called a press conference. And we used his statements as evidence against him but with a number of things he said. So, you know, I, I, all the clients should listen to their lawyers. And we're going to talk more about that case in a moment. Okay. But, but one last thing. You said that everybody up here respects Bob Mueller. That said, Mitch McConnell won't bring up legislation to protect Mueller's investigation in case the president at some point decides to fire him. Why do you think he's doing I, I that? I don't know. 
I don't know. I think that there's a, a bipartisan bill that I think is a very reasonable uh, bill. I don't know. It's got to come out of committee. I think it might this week. And one reason may be because Senator McConnell doesn't think it would ever pass the House uh, and the president would never sign it. From my standpoint, that's not a reason not to put it up. I think the Senate of the United States needs to speak on that issue and let folks know where they stand. Uh, and if they stand with trying to protect the special counsel as a body, uh, they ought to say so. If they don't want to do that, they need to be on record and, and to say that they don't. And when you heard that about Mitch McConnell, I mean, what did you think? I, I just was disappointed. Um, there may be things in his mind that I just don't know. I would hope that that would come up. I would hope that, that if that can get through the committee in a bipartisan way, there would be enough pressure from his own caucus to say, you know, bring to this, this to the floor. Going back to this regular order business, I think that there are times when the Senate of the United States needs to speak. Let the chips fall where they're going to fall, but speak. Let that message go forth, and it doesn't matter whether the, the House would go along with it or the president. We're an independent body, and we need to speak. We'll be back shortly with Alabama Senator Doug Jones right after this. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
time to dig into the listener mailbag, everybody. Dun, da, da, da. Thank you to our listeners who responded to our request for dispatches from rural areas. We wanted to hear from folks in communities that have been impacted by factory closings, the opioid epidemic, and or battles over immigration. So we got this voicemail from an anonymous listener who I think really sums up some of the challenges in rural America right now. And let's listen. My parents live in uh, Skinnyalis, New York, which is adjacent to Cortland. That used to be the home of Wolf Tennis Rackets, Brockway Trucks, and a sewing machine company. And unfortunately, the town has completely dried up since it's been so impoverished. The opioid epidemic has run rampant through um, these towns. Lack of funding, lack of business, lack of trade brings fewer dollars to the community, which means there's less police presence, which makes it even more um, prone to high crime. But the sad thing, it's so rampant that um, I believe it's also costing many people their lives from, from suicide. We really appreciate that call. And sadly, Brian, what that gentleman was talking about is all too true. In fact, there's something called deaths of despair, uh, which talks about people taking their own lives or turning to drugs or alcohol. And many people are dying in record numbers. In my white working class or white anxiety episode, Erie, Pennsylvania, has its suicide rate has skyrocketed, and the average age is a 47-year-old white male. It's a huge problem in many rural and Rust Belt communities all over the country. That's right, and a lot of these areas have a lack of access to drug treatment and mental health treatment, so all of these problems are really compounded by the lack of resources for people who need help. And I think one of the things we tried to do in this episode is to actually hear from people in these communities and understand the struggles that they're dealing with as this economic transition has left many of them out in the cold. As always, thank you so much for calling. Thank you for your honesty. And we really, really appreciate your feedback. It's important for us to hear from all of you. Next up, your brain on tech, more specifically tech addiction. That's a topic from America Inside Out that we'll be tackling next on this podcast. Is technology causing all of us to somehow lose our humanity? We want to hear from those of you who think you have a real problem with tech, like Quite honestly, I do. Like I do too. (laughs) Maybe you're hooked on your smartphone or someone close to you is. When did you realize this was an issue? How is it impacting your life, your relationship, the way you spend time? Or maybe you've put your foot down and refused to get a smartphone or you've gone back to a flip phone. We want to hear about that as well. So call and leave us a message at 929-224-4637, or you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com, or you can check out our episode from last August with Gene Twenge on tech addiction. I thought it was a particularly interesting and insightful one. That's episode number 36 on your podcast player. Let's talk a little bit about your backstory, Senator, because you're the first Democrat to win the ruby red state of Alabama since 1992. Right. And um, you grew up, obviously, in Birmingham. 
and such a tumultuous time mm-hmm. and the, really at the height of the civil rights movement. And I'm curious what you remember growing up. And I was also interested to read that you come from a family of George Wallace. Yeah, they were supporters. Supporters. What sort of gave you an epiphany growing up that this mentality needed to be challenged? I think that there was a combination of a a lot of things. And my family was a a pretty conservative. They were George Wallace uh, backers, but they weren't haters. They weren't avowed racists. And there was a big difference because Wallace was not only uh, race baiting, but he was also running against the federal government some. And there was this protection that Alabama has. You know, people often say Missouri is the show me state and Alabama is the make me state. And that's, there's a, there's been some truth to that over the years. I was nine years old, for instance, in 63. And as the world changed, it seemed that kids changed easier uh, than parents did. Parents and grandparents who had grown up in a society in which there were norms. Now, it may, you can call it America's own apartheid or whatever you call it, but that's where things were. You know, when I was in school, you know, we started having integrated schools. It was freedom of choice plans. And I think kids adapted. My school did a pretty good job, I think, of adapting to those things, the band, the football team, everything. But it sounds like you did a good job, too. I thought it was very moving to read accounts from African-American students who went to school with you and the kind of person you were and the way you reached out to them in a way that, quite frankly, many of your white classmates didn't. Well, I think the goal was, going back, you know, uh, we had a a predominantly white high school. We had an all-black high school, and the federal courts combined them all. And the one thing I learned in my, like, freshman and first part of my sophomore year in high school was what, how much fun high school can be. And, and so I think there were, with me and others, wanted to make that high school experience what it should be. It should be fun. You know, you should do all the things that teenagers do, both good and bad. And the only way to do that is to try to reach out and to talk to people and to try to accommodate. When you've got two schools coming together and they've got different, completely different traditions, trying to mold those two, you can't force one on the other. Were you the student council president? I was. I knew it. I just knew it. A politician even then. I was. You know, what what can I say? Well, we Um, should say, you know, it's interesting that the KKK has played a significant role in your life for a long time. I mean, I remember reading in law school, you would cut class to see this this case, this church bombing case, which you resuscitated as a U.S. attorney much later in your career. Can you describe that case, why it was so important to you, and and what ultimately happened with it? And what you saw when you were a law student. Well, what I saw when I was a law student was a, a dramatic courtroom drama. I mean, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. To me, lawyers, you know, weren't weren't people sitting at desks closing loans and things like that. And they're, they're great. I'm not saying anything bad about any of that. <laughs> that sounds um, we love lawyers. Yes, we love lawyers, all, all kinds. But to me, lawyers were Perry Mason and people in courtrooms and, you know. And the, Atticus and, Finch. Atticus Finch, the drama, the, the, the justice, all of that came from being a trial lawyer. And that's what I, you know, so when I cut classes, it was not just because, it was a significant historical case. And by the way, can you just quickly, parenthetically, describe that case for our listeners? Just sure. remind them. Yeah, no, in 1963, September 15th, on a Sunday morning, uh, a bomb exploded that had been placed outside underneath uh, the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church. And right 
but by it was the large window that led straight into the ladies' lounge in the basement of the church. And there were five young girls there getting ready for a youth worship service. And that mom killed four. Uh, it was a Sunday morning between Sunday school and church. It was going to be a youth worship service. And those girls were down there to be part and to get ready for that. And it was a real, I believe, turning moment. Birmingham had just gone through uh, fire hoses and dogs in the spring of 63. What, what people forget is that the schools of Birmingham were, gonna, were integrated like five days before that bombing, which was really, I think, the, the catalyst for, for why that bomb uh, was planted there. And the case went uh, unsolved despite incredible efforts of the FBI and prosecutors at the time. They just couldn't quite make it. There was only a five-year statute of limitations in federal court. So the case was closed, and then a young Alabama attorney general, Bill Baxley, opened it up in 1971 when he was sworn in as Alabama's AG, uh, brought the case against Robert Chambliss, known as Dynamite Bob. Um, you can't make this up, uh, you know, in 1977. And that's when I thought, okay, this is not a hi- just a historical case. Baxley is one of the great trial lawyers. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. So just like three years before, I'd been with Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas on a trip when he took to Alabama, University of Alabama. And, I, and then talking about advice for a young trial lawyer, he said, go watch trials. Go see good trial lawyers ply their trade. And so that was the perfect opportunity. And I sat in the balcony most of the time. I'd sneak up in the balcony and watch from above the testimony and Bill's dramatic closing argument in which everybody in the courtroom was in tears. He convicted Chambliss. Chambliss went to his grave uh, from prison, never, ever talking about the cases. And, you know, it kind of stayed on a shelf for 24 years. And it was right before I became the U.S. attorney in 1997 that publicly it was announced that it was reopened. And, you know, I'll I'll never forget the day when I read that it was going to be open. I I told my wife, you know, Louise, this is kind of why you go back to be a public servant, because this is an opportunity here and it's going to define how we do things in the state. So. It was how hard, amazing. How hard was it to prosecute the the cases of the two other individuals? You know, it, it, it sounds harder than it was. It was hard to investigate. There were so many people had died, witnesses, potential witnesses. We were tracking down. We didn't have any real physical evidence. So putting the pieces of that puzzle together was extraordinary. And we, you know, Bobby Frank Cherry was one of the defendants. He made certain admissions over the years that people came forward and told us about. We found an old tape recording that had been made of a, of a bug that had been put in Tommy Blanton's apartment, talking to his then wife about the bombing and what he was doing that weekend. So things just fell in place for us so that when we finally got to trial, we had a process that we stuck to consistently and it, everything worked really good. We, we had a good judge. The defense lawyers were lawyers that we trusted, and they trusted us. So there was not a lot of really anger or anything. It was a very methodical presentation. And, and I just felt very good that at the end of the day, we painted a picture. Uh, the pieces of those puzzle at the end were pulled together in closing arguments that showed beyond a reasonable doubt that those two guys were guilty. That must have been an extraordinarily important moment for the city of Birmingham oh. and for the state of Alabama oh, yeah, yeah. and for the country, for the country. really. And yet here we are. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, Senator, 
when that so-called alt-right, really white supremacist neo-Nazi rally took place. And I remember listening to Reverend Tracy Blackman from Ferguson, Missouri, the night before at an interface service, when there were scores of white, predominantly white men, many of them young and Brooks Brother uh, mm-hmm. khakis and Izod, you know, what do you call those, Lacoste shirts, yeah. uh, looking all neat and clean with their torches, their tiki torches. And she said, the Klan is rising again because we never cut the head off. Yeah. I, when I, you saw those scenes from Charlottesville. I, 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 my, my, my heart sunk. I mean, you just, you cannot believe that that's still going. You see the images, you see the, the chants. I mean, it was just stunning to me. And, and remember a year before that, it was Dylan Roof going into another church in Charleston, South Carolina and killing nine people um, and talking about the race war, things that we heard from the 1960s and, and all the Confederate battle flags that are flying and things like this. I, I'm not sure I would say you didn't cut the head off because, you know, I think that Morris Deese and some others really did a, an incredible job about the organized Klan. This is not, this is different. The rise of social media has allowed, you know, hate groups to come up as internet groups that can get together when they talk among themselves. You know, even as early when I was U.S. attorney, I I was there from 97 to 01, I would give speeches to uh, PTA groups to say, monitor your kids. I mean, those were old days of AOL group chats and things like that, not anywhere like it is today. But to monitor that, because you were beginning to see the rise of folks who harbored these feelings. There were a lot of lone wolves that we saw in the early 2000s in Texas and Illinois and other places that were committing these hate crimes. It's certainly one of those things that I I don't understand, but yet from an intellectual standpoint, I can see the rise with the social media presence that we have now. It just breeds that kind of kind of interaction. So, but, but it's, and, and that's hard to cut because you can, you can change laws, you can prosecute people, you can do all of those things, but that doesn't change somebody's heart. What was uh, your reaction life? when uh, President Trump said that there were fine people I, on both I almost, sides? I almost yelled at the TV, I'm, I'm, Mr. President, there are no fine people among white supremacists and Klans and neo-Nazis. They're not, they're not fine people. So why do you think he said it? I have no idea. Well, you really have no idea? You don't no. think he was trying to appeal to that I, group? That he views I, it as part of his base? You know, look, I'm not going to go there. I, you know, I, I just, I, I, I see that, and intellectually you can always say that. I have no idea. Sometimes politicians say stupid things, to, not to just try to appeal, but to try to play both sides. I, I don't want to accuse him of that, although I've probably done it in the past. I just think that that was a just all but moronic statement. And, and what really bothered me about it the most is that the president had such an opportunity to drive a stake in somebody's heart to say, to, to cut the head off a little bit about Donald Trump, of all people, could have done that. And if he'd have done it the right way, it would have been so significant. And he missed that opportunity. And whether he intended it or not, it did embolden people. It, there's no question that, that statements like that, uh, and, and to some extent his campaign, uh, emboldened that alt-right and the neo-Nazi folks, and words matter. As someone from Alabama, you know, Brian Stevenson is mm-hmm. opening his lynching museum, and 
in this episode for Nat Geo that I did about Confederate monuments, uh, he talked about the history we've neglected, right. i.e. lynching, uh, slavery, and the long tail, and the Jim Crow South. How do you feel about Confederate statues, Senator? Yeah, well, for one, I'm going down to this weekend uh, for the EGI opening, is, but most of the events, I can, and I can't wait. You know, my, my personal view is that I, I, I am not a fan of those monuments. I think from a personal standpoint, they should be removed from public places. Uh, that's a personal thing of, of mine. What I have said, though, is that I, I don't believe that the Congress, I don't believe a state legislature should tell a community what to do with those. If it was up to me, I would put them in a historical place because they are part of a history that you can't erase and you can't, you can't deny that history, good or bad. But I would move them to historical places, whether it's a, a battlefield, it's a cemetery or whatever, away from public display where they're being, a government is paying for them. At the same time, I think local people are in the best position to do that. The city councils, the county commissions. I don't think it's the Alabama legislature's uh, prerogative, for instance, to pass a law that says that you, Mr. Mayor, and the city council, despite the fact that you were elected locally uh, by your people, uh, and you're going to answer to them, that you can't move that monument that's been up for 50 years that was put in your community when it was a far different community. Because that's the legislation that passed. That's exactly the legislation. Uh, any, any statue or monument that was placed before 1977, yeah. it would be against the law to remove that. It, it, that is no place for the Alabama legislature. I don't care what they say. It is just not a place. That should be a local decision. I don't think Congress should intervene in any of that. But historical places of where, in my p- opinion, my personal opinion, that's where they ought to be. When you ran in Alabama, you really shocked the world by winning in such an overwhelmingly Republican state. On the other hand, your opponent was an alleged pedophile, and he still got 48.5% of the vote, including 80% of evangelical Christians. He won white women by 29, even though there's compelling evidence that when he was in his 30s, he went after a 14-year-old girl. How do you explain that? I was going to say, with that wind-up, the question is, what up with that? Yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't completely explain that except for this. And this is just my, again, trying to do a little bit of a deep dive on where, we, where things were. We always believe that as the number of people in the race went up, then things were going to tighten up. We were going to win that election. I, I'm absolutely convinced we were going to win that election. The worst day of the campaign was when those those allegations came up, because this is what I think. The happened. worst day for you? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, my staff, the campaign, they were all dancing on tables, and I said, "Get off, guys!" Because let me tell you what's going to happen. Because now all of a sudden, attention's going to be drawn. The the race is going to turn tribal, and I hate to use that word. It, I, I don't like that so word, but it's so appropriate. And because now people started thinking about it in those terms. You know, in a lot of places in America, not just in Alabama, but when you start making allegations against somebody you've supported in the past, they tend to support them. And then in, a, in an era in which the leader of the United States has said nothing but fake news, it's real easy to say that's fake news. They're just making this up. It's the Washington Post. We don't like them. It's just a liberal elitist. Um, outsiders. Outsiders. The same thing. And, and all of a sudden, people started looking. I've had so many people tell me since the election, I say so many people, there were a lot who said, look, I'm going to give you a, a chance. I want y'all to work together. I didn't vote for you because I didn't want to lose the seat. 
And that's what I think we have to overcome in America, that we, that we get away where that tribal party means more than common decency and that allegations that were inc very credible. I would have taken as a prosecutor that case any day of the week and, and, and even on Sundays and, and just <laughs> gone to, to a grand jury and a court with it and convicted him. But it became very tribal when that happened. We just had to stay in our lane and talk about issues. What you said was, was just really extraordinary. I mean, you're saying that we've become so tribal that even though there's overwhelming evidence that your opponent was and is a pedophile, yeah. it actually helped him and hurt you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it drove up. Now, did I get more votes? Did it drive up some votes for us? Abs absolutely. But I think it made the election more tribal and more people came out. The more people that came out, it was going to be more difficult for us uh, to, w to win the election. We had an energy of a base out there, and we were getting more and more people. But uh, when it started becoming like that, and, and that was the focus, whether it was true or not true, th those were all issues. And a lot of folks in Alabama, you know, it, it, it really didn't help when Republican senators, they thought they were helping me, I think. Some of them, when they were, you're saying, well, we're going to kick him out of office if he comes up here. Well, then they gave some people a chance to think, okay, we'll get a do-over. Let's go ahead and vote for more because I, I don't want a Democrat. And we'll get a do-over because surely they're not going to seat him. Now, that is opposed to others like Senator Shelby, who I thought was very, very statesmanlike, who said, look, I'm going to write in. I cannot vote for this man, and I'm going to write somebody in. He never said we're going to expel him or do anything like that. Well, that, that was, was a profiling courage. It, it certainly was. It was, and, and you know, I've known Senator Shelby a long time. When he was a Democrat, maybe, When he was too. a Democrat. I've known him since he was a state senator in Tuscaloosa, and I was a, a young Alabama student uh, there. So we go way back, uh, but it was a profiles and courage moment for him. Let's talk about this tribalism that you described, Senator, that very much surfaced during your campaign. I did a six-hour documentary series for National Geographic. Did I mention I did a six-hour no, documentary never. series? No, never. I'm just learning about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, one was on white working-class anxiety. Now, was this on the six-hour documentary <laughs> yes, that you've it done? Was. Okay, she's not going to make it very much. Uh, no, shamelessly <laughs> okay. it, Senator. Okay. But one is on white working-class anxiety yeah. in this country. And I'm curious if, if you have an explanation why we have become so tribalistic, and is there anything that can be done about yeah, it? Yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done about it. Number one is that people, uh, I think if, if we become tribalistic a lot because of social issues, and, and they're deeply held uh, cultural beliefs in, on those social issues, and you're not going to change a lot of people on those issues, but what I think folks need to do more is try to focus on things we have in common, and and there are even, even on those issues, you can find some common ground on things. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's just not a question of talking to people. I hear political people all the time saying, well, we, we lost touch because we didn't talk to this group or that group. No, that's not really it. You didn't listen to them. And, and you didn't hear their concerns and you didn't understand. And that's, I think, one of the things that we did. We talked about the kitchen table issues. And that's what really, I think, binds people in America right now. Like what? Like, like their health care. Everybody wants to be, you know, have good health care for themselves and for their families. I think wages and income, they see this incredible wage gap that we've got right now. And they don't quite understand that. And they want to know how 
they can have that better life. I think education for their children is a driver as well. Um, and we've let politicians so talk about those cultural issues that divide us that they've dominated the political scene, at least in, in the South. I can imagine, by the way, if Hillary Clinton were sitting here right now, she would say, well, I talked about health care and education and mm-hmm. jobs sure. every damn day of that campaign. Why did it work for you and it didn't work for me? Well, because she did. I don't think that they listened as much of people coming back to them. And, and at the end of the day, there was also this incredible focus on the foibles of Donald Trump. It was a personal attack on Donald Trump day in and day out. I didn't do that with Roy Moore. It would have been real easy for me to do that. But I stayed on my message of issues. There were other people attacking him. I didn't have to do that, you know. But in fairness, I mean, Hillary Clinton was being attacked relentlessly by Donald Trump. I, 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 I get that. I get that. But I think you lose the messages. And so when you lose the messages among that political noise like that on the personal attacks, then it gives people, they, they, they really get lost in what they're voting for, and they're just going to vote for the personality sometime. And that's just a very simplistic way of looking at it. I, all I can tell you is that I, I wanted to stay very focused. You only heard me really one time give a speech uh, in which I really put what I hope to be a, a stake in his heart. But I really focused on issues, and I think, that's, I think that's what public servants should be doing. You're reading White Working Class by Joan Williams, which yeah. really was my Bible for this yeah. hour, and she talks a lot about cultural condescension and cultural cluelessness. Right. There seems to be a basic lack of respect, I think. Uh, you know, and, and let's be honest, the, yeah. the leader of this country is largely responsible for the Absolutely. coarsening of our discourse. No question. Uh, So it goes both ways. But there's also a lot of coastal elite snobbery toward people who really provide the backbone of this country in many ways. That's right. And and that's my people. That's where I grew up in the steel mills of Fairfield and then the, you know, family in the, in the, in dirt poor areas of of Alabama. And they absolutely feel that way. And by the way, I haven't even started that one yet. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Yeah. And it's a very quick read. (laughs) My my wife gave me the one I'm doing now is an interesting book. J.D. Vance? No, it's, it's, it's called uh, Harry and Arthur about Harry Truman and Arthur Vandenberg, the Republican Senator and the Democratic President and how they put their politics aside in order to rebuild the world after World War II with the Marshall Plan and how the United States of America became not only the economic and global leader of the world, but the moral leader of the world. And we're seeing a slide of that a good bit right now. I'm going to it's put a, that on my it's list. It's a great book. So speaking of, of foreign policy, Vandenberg and Truman, I mean, I know you're new to the Senate, but, but we did want to ask you about Syria as yeah. well. The U.S. as well as the British and the French conducted this very limited one-night operation that hit three targets related to chemical weapons. But we basically accepted the status quo that Assad is leading the country so long as he kills people with guns and torture rather than chemicals. Yeah, exactly. So do you think there's still a role for us to push to get Assad out? Do you think we should get more involved somehow, or do you think we should basically accept the way it is? You know, I think that what's obviously a troubling thing is that I'm not sure there's been a real good Syria strategy for a long time. Do you blame President Obama I, for I that? Think, I'm not sure his strategy was very, as good. Uh, things were moving in ways, and you saw things happen in Libya and other places, and it was, a, it was an interesting changing world that we saw in a matter of a few years. And, and all of a sudden, Assad, I, I think if you saw what happened, 
it, it would appear that Assad was going to be just the next one to fall, and it didn't happen. And so by that, I think it took people a little bit by surprise, and they, he became entrenched. Um, I, I supported those strikes on the chemical weapons because it is a, a, a problem. I don't know where the future is at this point. I think that uh, if the president is going to do anything additional, uh, it's going to appear that he is trying a regime change, and I think that that's going to have to involve Congress. I think there's, a, there's only so far that he can go with that, and I think it's going to be a tough situation. We've got you know, you know, we're we're in a kind of a proxy war with the Soviet Union right now, and uh, with Russia, you want to say? Yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm still, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still living in those old days, and to me, to me, they're almost one and the same. Okay, I mean, when you really look at what happened with the Soviet Union, and you look at what Putin's doing right now, I, you know, they're just it's just two peas in a pod, as we say in the South. Um, so. I think that that's going to be a, a real challenge for America in the, in the coming years. Are you going to support Mike Pompeo's nomination you to know, be Secretary of State? You know, as we sit here today, I haven't completely made up my mind. I, uh, uh, there, I have got some grave concerns about some things that he's said and done in the past. Which, which things? Well, I think it, 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 for the gay community, for the Muslim community, it gives the, that, those communities a real sense of that they would have a Secretary of State that is not looking out for their best interest. On the other hand... I think his role as CIA director, there's not been anything that would disqualify him. I met with him the other day. Uh, did you voice your concerns? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what you know, did he we, say? Well, he had a, it, 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 I'd like to kind of keep that a little bit more private, but he was consistent with his public testimony. Because he, he's made very Islamophobic he's, he's comments. He's made very ones. I think uh, you have to take somebody at their word to some extent. Uh, his comments to me were reassuring about that. That doesn't always carry the ball, but they were certainly reassuring. And I think, you know, sometimes when you say things in a political sense and you change jobs, it makes a difference. You know, for those damn paper trails, they huh? do. It's, it's crazy. But, you know, I was a prosecutor and then I was a defense lawyer and then I was a prosecutor again. And I was. A, so people would say the same thing about me, the things I said about the government when I was defending somebody. And then all of a sudden I became the government. So I, I, I put a lot of things in a big context and we'll see. I, I, I'm working with the staff and we're trying to do a little bit. Uh, and I'll have my mind made up in the next probably 24 hours or so, if not not less. But it's a it's a tough. That's a, that's probably the toughest vote I'll take. Will you call um, us and let us know so we can update this podcast? Uh, of course I will. <laughs> it comes out on Thursday. Yeah. 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 Um, I know we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about this groundswell of opposition we've seen from primarily young people mm -hmm. about gun violence in this country, Senator. I know you're a staunch proponent of the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. You yourself. You're a hunter. Right. Um, but I'm curious if you think anything at all can be done at the federal level to decrease gun violence. And what do you think would be the most effective way to do that? Well, I think there can be some things, but there's a difference when can something be done and will it be done? I think the will it be done is a lot harder question because of the obvious political I think there's a lot of things that can be done. In fact, I made, gave my maiden speech uh, on gun violence. Um, you want to raise the age I, to 21? I wanted to raise the age to 21. I want to do something about universal background checks. And what about semi-automatic weapons? What about AR-15s? I mean, you're a hunter. Yeah. Is any hunter worth his or her salt going to use a semi-automatic weapon? No. Oh, yes. 
Yes. Really? Oh, absolutely. The first deer rifle I bought. See, one of the problems, Katie, is people don't really understand the terminology. The first deer rifle I brought was a Browning um, Safari 308. It has five rounds. It's a semi-automatic. I, I fired and it, and it comes out. I got a nice scope on it. Great deer rifle. That's different than an AR-15. Well, let's talk about the AR-15. Okay, that's, that's different. But people have to also understand that in this day and age, there's a culture in the South and a lot of places that it's not just a question of hunting. People like to take and shoot. They go to target practice. I do that with my son. I don't, every time I shoot a gun is not at a deer or a turkey or a bird. It is, I sometimes will go and we'll just shoot at a paper target. And I don't think that right now, there is any appetite, and I think about talking about banning AR-15s is a non-starter, and it causes people to go into corners. And so what I did in my maiden speech, which I thought was something that was important for a son of the South to start talking about, a gun owner a, and somebody that shoots guns regularly and has a safe that's got a lot of them in there, to talk about things that I think can and should be done, raising the age, you know, it's 21 for pistols anyway. Why not do that for semi-automatic weapons? And why okay? is that? I mean, that's, that seems insane it, to me. It, 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 it's, I, I don't know the answer why there's one and, and not the other. I think that you can do universal background checks, make some exceptions uh, to that um, that I think would be legitimate. But I think you can do those. I think there's, I want to close the boyfriend loophole. Um, those are things that, and we took some steps with trying to fix the NIC system to make it better. And then, and, and a big step was getting away with the Dickey Amendment that would allow the NIC uh, system is the background checks, exactly. records, updating exactly. them. And but we also got rid of the, the the amendment that will now allow the CDC to do some research on gun violence, which is insane, by the way. They cannot study it as a public health epidemic and, and or that, issue and now, because of Congress. And now we've removed that. Now it hadn't been funded to do that, but at least we've re removed that. And Katie, that was a big deal. That was fought so bad, and that was a big step. I think for Second Amendment guys to, to step up and do. So I'm hopeful that down the road that we continue to have this. And that's what I keep wanting to people to talk about is gun violence, not gun control. Let's talk about gun violence and suicides uh, and accidents and homicides and the things that we can do to stop the number of deaths that result from a trigger being pulled on a weapon. So this week, President Trump invited President Macron of France to the United States for a state dinner. And breaking with tradition, he invited no Democratic members of Congress and no journalists to the dinner. Do you think that was a mistake? Absolutely. How can you, how can you talk, how can you stand in front of all the members of Congress at the State of the Union and talk about working together and finding common ground if you don't adhere to those uh, traditions? I think it was a huge mistake on his part. Okay, another thing that's in the news, the chair of your party filed a lawsuit against the Russian government, WikiLeaks, and the Trump campaign for conspiring to hurt Hillary Clinton by hacking the Democratic Party and disseminating stolen emails, stolen material. What's your reaction to that? Do you think the lawsuit's the right thing to do? I don't think the lawsuit was the right thing to do. I haven't talked to Tom Perez since, since he filed it. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I think it keeps it stirred up, and there's plenty of things out there right now that are working its way through that sooner or later the public's going to know. Why do you uh, think he did it? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. He, you know, what I read was to try to preserve some rights, but I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. It's just not something that I felt like would be appropriate to do. There's a lot going on right now that it's going to come out one, one way or another. His you argument mentioned. is basically the statute of limitations is going to run and they need to file the lawsuit now or they're going to lose their opportunity and that they were, you know, hurt by this conspiracy in 2016. And also to prevent similar meddling in 2018, they needed to kind of lay down a marker. Well, that's where Congress ought to be acting. 
Okay, that, that, that's not up to a civil lawsuit to do that. And that lawsuit won't wind its way through the courts in time to have any effect on 2018. I think that's up to Congress. And people in both houses are now looking at the Russian meddling. I don't think the administration has done enough, but they are beginning to come around and start doing things now. And it is probably one of the hottest topics up on the Hill today because it is a very, very serious problem that is going to continue unless we take some serious action. As someone who's spent his entire career dealing with lawyers and with law enforcement and the FBI, what do you think of James Comey? Well, I have, uh, I have a lot of respect for James Comey. I did. Uh, I think he made some, some mistakes. I'm not uh, one of those Democrats who, you know, has flip-flopped. I thought it was a mistake when he released the letter that he did 11 days before the election. Uh, I what would you have done? I would have, I would have reopened the investigation and just gone about my work. Uh, you, you don't try to do you something like that. you would like not that. have announced it? No, absolutely not. You, that, that's just not something that you do. 11 days before a very hot, before any election, because whether it would or would not, the chances are it was going to affect the election, whether it would have changed the outcome was not the determining uh, factor. It should not have been released. In my view, it should not have been released. I was not persuaded by his uh, public comments or his book about why he did. It was interesting to me, you know, he kept saying that the FBI is above politics and yet he did concede that he was probably influenced yeah. by his suspicion that Hillary Clinton would be elected. Was going to be elected, and, and it would taint not only her presidency, which is fair, but also taint the FBI and him for withholding it. And that was just—it just should have—you just let the chips fall where they're going to fall. So that should not have been done. Having said that, though, I think that w- all he went through with the president that no, no FBI director should have gone through. You should not be demanded to, to take a loyalty test because the director of the FBI works for the people and for the Justice Department, not for an individual uh, who happened to assume the presidency. So with things that occurred afterwards, I think he has uh, done exactly uh, the right things. I mean, I, I, in that respect, I, I have a lot of respect for him. People make mistakes, and that happens, but I think he got, uh, I don't think it was a good, good thing what happened to him and the way it happened. And do you think when all is said and done that Hillary's biggest flaw was that the campaign became too personal and she attacked Trump too much? Well, I think she, I think that, and I also think she took for granted a lot of votes in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and some of those places. And she started focusing, uh, she started reading too many of the headlines that I'm going to win. And so she thought, well, let's just really go to Arizona. Let's go to these other places because if I can win there, it'll be a big win. Um, Were you shocked? By the time that election came on that Tuesday, I was not. I, I, from my standpoint, I was beginning. Now, my wife will tell you I'm always the pessimist when it comes to my juries being out and everything else. But I told the downtown Democratic Club in Birmingham on the Friday before the election that they should not be celebrating, that there was something out there in America that, that Donald Trump was tapping. And it was a frustration that, and people wanted to be heard, that they didn't feel like that they'd be heard. And, and I was very worried about that over the sense of the weekend. And I just felt like the, the campaign had not paid enough attention to folks that might make a difference. On the day of the election, I was texting with some people very high up in the, in the campaign. Uh, and they told me it was going to be tight. And I looked at my wife. And I said, I, I, this is not going to happen. Just be ready. 
it's not going to happen. And, and it, was, it, was a, it was a pretty depressing night for us. But at the same time, it also, from, from our standpoint, my wife and I's standpoint, Louise and I, it, it really kind of spurred us on for this race and what we did because, you know, elections matter and elections have consequences. And as you saw the women's march and you saw things build, you know, it was, it, we've, everybody felt like it's time to get back to the decency, the honorable thing to do, to give people a voice uh, that in Alabama had not had a vo- voice before, at, or at least in, in a long time, I didn't think. And so there was, you know, there's silver linings to everything. And I think that now we're going to see uh, people energized. As, as polarized as the country is, I think people are energized to make a difference. Do you think the Democrats are going to take the House and the Senate in 2018? I, I have no idea. No idea. All right, well, let's jump ahead to 2020 <laughs> and your friend Joe Biden. You guys are big buddies. Oh, now, now, Katie, you know I'm not <laughs> supposed to talk. I'm here in my Senate office building, so let's don't let's just don't talk about politics. Let's talk about policy and let's talk about energizing uh, people in America to come out and do the right things in the electoral process. But you got to know Joe Biden because you worked with him in what 1988. Is that well, right? yeah, I met Joe when I was in law school, actually in the 70s, and we just stayed friends. And I'm very, very fond of him. I think he is one of this country's greatest leaders. He can talk to people as well. And I think that that's a very important uh, thing. Well, he's, he's, not, he's from Scranton, PA. He's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he talks to folks, and he talks to, to working class folks. And when he quotes his dad, who, you know, had a, a working class guy, um, people respond to that. I think Joe, and, and there's maybe, and there's others too that have that ability. But I think that that's the kind of thing we need back in the Senate, in the House, in the presidency. Um, in conclusion, your term uh, wraps up at the end of 2020, or actually the beginning of 2021. Mm, the first term. Um, the first term. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask this. Let me ask this a different way. Then. <laughs> As a senator, what do you hope to accomplish in this term? Well, what do you hope to be able to deliver for the people of Alabama? I'm hoping I can deliver a number of things. I'm hoping I, I can I can help save our community hospitals. Uh, we're losing them, our rural hospitals, left and right. I'm hoping I can help with a health care system that will deliver health care throughout the state. I'm hoping I can work with some of the poor areas in the state where we have some serious sanitation issues. I'm hoping that I continue to help attract business and industry to the state of Alabama. You know, working with Senator Shelby and others, we've got a growing economy in Alabama, in in Mobile and in Montgomery and Birmingham and Huntsville. But I want to grow that economy in, in the rural areas as well. So I'm hoping that I can convince people that, you know, the federal government is not a bad thing. For every dollar that we send up, we get a couple of bucks back. And they're good programs. They're, it's Medicaid. It's Medicare. I want to make sure that I save that for my folks because it's so important. We have a very unhealthy state. We have a poor state. I'd like to see the income go up. I'd like to help with a workforce development that's going to help people in the 21st century. That, that if you don't go to college, you don't get a four-year degree, you can go to a community college and you can get a trade and you can get a job at the new Toyota plant and make fifty dollars to $100,000 a year and help build that middle class back that is shrinking mightily. Uh, I think Congress has an opportunity to, to do a lot of things. Uh, like that, we've got to save those programs that are not just safety nets, but are, that are vital to so many people in my state. And also do those kind of things around our defense system to protect the country that's also good for Alabama's economy. 
I mean, I didn't vote to shut the government down. I was one of the few Democrats who didn't do that because a shutdown in government would have hurt the state of Alabama's economy a lot. Uh, we have too many, we have a lot of government jobs that are dependent on, on that coming in. So those are the kind of things that I hope uh, that I can accomplish or at least start the process of accomplishing uh, for and what folks. What about for the country, Senator? You know, people, are, I think, are so disillusioned and so disheartened. And is there anything you, the young senator, relatively young senator from Alabama, <laughs> that you can do to restore people's faith in institutions like the federal government. Well, I, you know, look, I'm not a young senator. I'm a new senator, but I'm not a young senator. <laughs> You're the senator. junior senator. I, I am the junior senator. Um, <laughs> so you that know, makes you sound young. I, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I, you know, I think my role in, in part is to continue to talk to people and, and listen to people and to talk about those institutions and the rule of law. I think I bring a, an interesting perspective. Having done those old Klan cases, having done those things, having been in the Justice Department and then out and then back in and then back out and now in my role as a U.S. senator. Um, I, I want people to talk about the rule of law and respect the rule of law. And I want people to respect the institutions of government and to make sure that we can always have, we have disagreements over how we get to a certain place, but we can also find that common ground that we can get to that place and everybody will be satisfied. I think that's a role that I can, can do. I think our election in part sent that message. And I've had so many people tell me, I want you guys to work together. Send this message, not just, not just to Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Party, send it over to McConnell as well. You guys need to work together. And I've told people, it's one thing to talk about reaching across the aisle, which is what I'm trying to do consistently in whatever I do. Um, but in order to move forward, you've got to have somebody who's willing to accept that reach and work with you and not just try to yank you across the other side. It will be tough with the 2018 elections coming up, but I think that that's my role to say, look, we can be decent to each other. We can care about each other. We can make sure that everyone has the kind of justice that those four little girls got uh, with those convictions. We can do that for, for DACA. We can do that for workers. We can do that for business leaders. None of those are inconsistent. They are not inconsistent with the American dream. And if we can do that, then I think we'll be in, in really good. But it's, it's not going to be easy to get there with the way things are now. See, so you, you, you were so inspiring, and then you kind of were a Debbie Downer at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's the old but pessimist comment, sneaking it's, in. That's right. It's the, it's the challenges. And we, we, you've got to, at the end of the day, though, it's the glass half full. Well, and that's the way you. I do it up here. So. Thank you, Senator, thank you. so much. This it's, was so thank much you for fun talking the time. to you. It's been my pleasure. Great my to be pleasure. here in your office as yeah. well. And congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you very much to Senator Doug Jones and his entire staff for hosting us this week in Washington, D.C. Also, thank you to our traveling pod squad. <laughs> That's our producer, Gianna Palmer, and our audio engineer, Jared O'Connell, who was very sweet and helped carry my bag, which was really overstuffed and super heavy. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, I can attest to that. Anyway, <laughs> Nora Ritchie is our assistant producer. Beth DeMoz, Emily Bina, and Allison Bresnick make magic happen over at Katie Couric Media. And Mark Phillips wrote our 
theme music. Brian and I are the show's executive producers. You can find me on social media under Katie Couric. Brian on a plane, snooping at what podcasts you may be downloading. <laughs> I tweet from the handle at Goldsmith B. And remember to call in with your tales of tech addiction at 929-224-4637. You can also email us, as always, at comments at currickpodcast.com. And while you've got your typing fingers warmed up, <laughs> we'd love it if you would leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. And please subscribe to the show, too. And tell your friends, by all means. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back here next week. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.